Okay. Am I on? There we go. Hi. Good morning, everybody. So we, uh, we're at the end of the book of Micah, obviously. Now, uh, Cheryl is correct. Don't come back next week because well, I'll be here, but I'm not going to be here. Uh, and I won't have anything to teach you. Well, we're in the last section of the book of Micah. And uh, this is the, the salvation section that, that kind of draws everything uh, in the book to a close. Uh, in, in a lot of ways, the book's been building, building to this. So you have these cycles of judgment and salvation. And this salvation section is actually uh, going to not only close the book, but it draws together uh, all of these strands that have been running through the book, particularly the strands of what God is promising for the future. Uh, and so we're going to see as we look at this, uh, things from earlier in the book pop back up again as it sort of summarizes what God is going to do for his people. But it's also set, it's not just set in, in, the, in terms of a promise, right? And so you have in, in uh, chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, in chapters 4 and 5, you have these, these kind of prophetic promises about what's going to come and while certainly uh, the, this last part of chapter 7 is, is also it's a promise, it's set within this, this song, this prayer of praise and trust in God. And so it's not just Micah promising something. It's almost as, as if Micah is speaking uh, on behalf of the, this remnant of God's people, giving them words by which to praise God for this deliverance that he's promised. So it's both promising something, it's reiterating the promises, but it's also giving God's people language to use to, to praise him, to express their trust in him, which is really important because at the time when, when this is being written, when this is being spoken, those promises haven't come to fruition yet, right? The, the people are still surrounded by the enemy armies, Right? Jerusalem's still under siege. The exile is still coming. The judgment of God for the people's sin is still coming. Uh, and yet Micah is, is telling them there is a salvation coming. There's a deliverance coming. God's going to be faithful to his promises. And here's how you can worship him in the midst of it. As you wait for this, because he's entirely reliable. So you can trust that this is going to happen. So this last section, I've got broken down into three kind of big parts. <clears throat> two um, prayers, or, or two, two sections that are, seem to be more direct sort of addresses to God. Uh, and then in the middle, a summary of, of this, the promises of God's Salvation, and that's, that's really where we, we're picking up some of these strands from coming throughout the book. And so, um, verses 7 to 10, a prayer of trust in the God who saves. Verses 11 to 17, the summary of God's promised salvation that includes uh, the promise that God's going to restore his place, the place of his dwelling among his people, and he's going to bring the nations to worship him. And God's going to rescue his people. He's going to restore uh, the remnant of his people, and he's going to do that through this shepherd king who's going to rule them. 
And God is also going to bring justice and retribution on those wicked nations that have opposed him and continue to oppose him. And then the very end brings everything together. It's a, a prayer of praise for this God who will save his people and will be faithful to his covenant. So let's look at that starting at verses 7 to 10. This is this prayer of, of trust in the God who saves. So Micah is um, speaking in the first person. He may be speaking in the first person as a representative of the remnant of God's people, this, this faithful remnant who uh, is attempting to, to follow God in spite of everything that's going on around them. Remember verse 6, uh, or uh, really verses 1 to 6, chapter 7, 1 to 6, uh, showed this, uh, this situation. Mike is lamenting the fact that everybody in, in the land is corrupt. There's no one righteous. Right? He, he goes out, he says, I'm like a fruit picker. I came looking for fruit and all I found were thorns and briars. Right? There's no godly people left in the land. That's hyperbole. It's not that there's nobody left in the land who's attempting to follow God, but the nation is so corrupt it might as well be. And so then Mike is speaking for the remnant says, nobody can, be, nobody can be trusted, right? Verses 5 and 6, no, don't trust your neighbor, don't trust your friend, don't even trust your, your wife or your family, not because everybody is so corrupt. So that last section on judgment kind of sets the, the tone for this section, because in verse 7, it starts with a contrast, and he says, but... So different from what came before, different from this situation where everybody's corrupt and, and you can't trust anyone. It says, but as for me, I will watch expectantly for the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Uh, it's an expression of trust, this this belief that God is going to hear him. That God is going to, uh, and if he's speaking as, as a representative of this remnant of God's people, that God is still going to be faithful to his people. He's going to watch expectantly for the Lord, wait for the God of his salvation, and, and saying that God will hear him as he's waiting for him expectantly means he believes that God is actually going to come and save. God is going to come and deliver. Although no one else is trustworthy in the whole land, God is still trustworthy. Despite the present suffering that the people are going through. And he turns in verse 8 and he starts to uh, address, uh, in a sense, the, the enemies of God's people. So he says, do not rejoice over me, O my enemy. Which we may think uh, enemy here may be the Assyrians, maybe the Babylonians, maybe a very general reference to everyone who opposes God's people. Do not rejoice over me, O my enemy. 
Though I fall, I will rise. Though I dwell in darkness, the Lord is a light for me. It could be that Mike is thinking about the, the taunts of the enemies who had come up against Jerusalem, and they were saying, where is your God? This is in verse 10. This is the, the kind of thing that the enemy is saying. Where is the Lord your God? Right, when the Assyrians came and besieged Jerusalem and the Assyrian leaders are standing outside the city calling in to the Jews saying, don't trust your king, don't trust your God, they can't save you, no, no other God of any other nation has been able to, to stop us, uh, so don't think that your God can do it. You might as well give up and just come out and join us. Stop worshiping your God, come out with us, worship our gods and everything will be fine because the Lord can't save you. This is, they're, they're taunting the people. They're rejoicing over the fact that, that the Israelites are, are falling. And the response that Micah says they should have is, say, don't rejoice over me. Though I fall, I will rise. Though I dwell in darkness, the Lord is a light for me. This, uh, idea of dwelling in darkness and the Lord being a light. This is, sim this is symbolic. Um, darkness, especially in the Old Testament, uh, because it appears a lot, darkness is symbolic of God's judgment. We talk about darkness, it's, uh, it's God coming in, in judgment. Uh, you see this in Exodus, uh, in the plagues. One of the plagues is darkness covering the face of the land. See this in the book of Isaiah. Um, I think it's Isaiah 9. I don't remember totally off the top of my head. Um, in Isaiah, then it gets quoted in Matthew, right, where it talks about these, these, uh, the, the peoples who have dwelt in deep darkness. On them a light has shined. I'm talking about the coming of Jesus. So dwelling in darkness, a sign of God's judgment on the people. You see this... Uh, very clearly in the Gospels, when at the crucifixion, darkness comes over the land at the time of Jesus' crucifixion. That's not just a random solar eclipse that made the, the sky dark. That, that is representative of uh, God's judgment. God is showing the people uh, in, in an, uh, a super at, uh, supernatural act that his judgment is being poured out on Jesus. That's why it becomes dark. It's not just a, a kind of a random cosmic event. God is very specifically doing that to communicate something. So darkness shows the judgment of God. So the people are, are recognizing something here that they have not recognized throughout the whole book. Right? The whole book, the people have been breaking the covenant. They've, uh, and, and anytime anything bad is happening... They're saying, oh, well, it's not the Lord. I mean, surely the Lord wouldn't do this. We're not doing anything bad. Um, but here they recognize they're dwelling in darkness, that they're, they're dwelling under the judgment of God. And yet, there's a recognition that after this, the Lord will be a light for them. Light also significant... Uh, as, as, a, as a symbol of salvation, deliverance, life, right? The Lord is my light and my salvation. 
Psalm 27, 1. And so there's a recognition that, that, that the people are bearing uh, this judgment of God, but that it's not permanent. Um, it, it's something that is, is going to pass, and the Lord again is going to deliver them. And that gets played out more in verse 9. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. Right, so the, the fact that the people have fallen, the fact that they dwell in darkness, is actually explained by, by a recognition that they are bearing the indignation of the Lord. And that that has come because they sinned against him. Again, this is the first time in the book where it seems like there are people who are, other than Micah, who are recognizing that the reason all of this stuff is happening is because the people have sinned against God and they are rightly, deservingly, under his judgment. It's very different from the places in the book where the people are complaining about God's judgment or presuming that God supports them in their wickedness, right? You see this is like in chapter 3 where people are, are saying, you know, oh, but surely the Lord is among us even though they're practicing all of these wicked things. Here you see how God's people are supposed to react when they're confronted with their sin. They admit their sinfulness. They admit that the reason they're in the situation that they're in, that they've fallen, that they're dwelling in darkness, is because of their sin. And that God is right and just in what he's doing. So there's an admission of their guilt. They don't try to blame shift. Say, yeah, we 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 deserve this. You see this actually. <clears throat> um, this this thing this get recognized in in Nehemiah nine. So Nehemiah nine after the exile, um, and, and they come the the exiles come back to Jerusalem, and in Nehemiah nine there's this prayer of confession. And one of the things that that comes out in this prayer of confession is uh, that the people confessing their sins and the sins of their fathers, so the rest of Israel in, in the past, confessing their sins, basically saying, God, you have acted righteously and we have acted wickedly. So there's an, there's an admission that, yes, you have been totally just in what you've caused to come upon us because we broke covenant with you. This is exactly what you told us would, would happen. You have done nothing wrong. You have been nothing but faithful. Verse 9 is not only a, uh, an admission of, of, of guilt, but it's also an expression of trust because saying, I'm going to bear the indignation of the Lord because I've sinned against him. But again, this is not a permanent situation. There's, a, there's an end point, until. So I'm going to bear the indignation of the Lord until he pleads my case and executes justice for me. We return to the legal kind of language that we've seen throughout the book, right? Micah acting as this prosecutor. But 
unlike in Micah, uh, particularly in Micah 6, where Micah is op- uh, operating as sort of presenting the case against God's people and announcing the judgment and the justice coming upon God's people, here it says, now at this point, in the future, at some point in the future, after they've borne the indignation of the Lord because of their sin, because they've broken the covenant with God, that God is going to plead the people's case. So he's not going to present the case against them. Now he's going to plead the case on the people's behalf. He's no longer going to act as the prosecutor. Now he's going to act in defense. He's going to plead their case, and he's going to execute justice for them on their behalf. So no longer is he going to punish their sin, but now he's going to make sure that justice is done on their behalf. Uh, connection uh, to this, if you look at First John 2, 1 and 2, one of the uh, wonderful ministries of the Lord Jesus in his ascended, exalted state now is that he is the advocate for God's people. Right? First John 2, 1 and 2, I write these things to you so that you will not sin, but if you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. And so, uh, of course, this Micah isn't saying, uh, God pleading your case and executing justice for you is going to take the form of uh, the Messiah coming, dying, rising again, ascending into heaven, and being your high priest, interceding for you. That's all theologically true, so that's not exactly what Mike is saying, but it points forward to it. Right? Now, looking back from where we are, seeing what happened with the Lord Jesus, we say, ah, this is what Micah was saying. Remember 1 Peter uh, 1, is it 10 to 12-ish? Um, uh, Peter talks about how the prophets uh, looked expectantly uh, forward to understand what it was they were prophesying, though they did not know. They didn't understand completely what they were saying. So they were saying things, and they said, we don't know what this is going to look like. And Peter says, you have the privilege of being able to now understand things that the prophets longed to understand, even though they were being used by God to prophesy it. He will bring me out to the light, and I will see his righteousness. It's expressing salvation. God is going to, to deliver us. We're going to see his righteousness. This is, this is loaded. We could spend a lot of time talking about this, but uh, just read all of the book of Romans. About the righteousness of God, right? I will see his righteousness. In fact, Romans 3 21, one of the most wonderful verses in the Bible. But now, a righteousness from God has been revealed. That is, uh, apart from the law, although it's testified to by the law and the prophets, a righteousness of God that comes by faith in Jesus Christ. So, you can, 321 to 26, righteousness of God. You'll see his righteousness, his salvation that's going to come in the end. And then verse 10, and then my enemy will see, and sh- uh, shame will cover her who said to me, and the her is, is uh, my enemy, 
these foreign nations, peoples that are abusing God's people. My enemy will see, shame will cover her who said to me, where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look on her, and at that time she'll be trampled down like mire in the streets. So these enemy nations who have been abusing God's people uh, and seemingly been, been able to do whatever they want and, and uh, get away with their wickedness, God's saying, no, in, in the future, they don't get away with it anymore. I, I don't forget to make sure that justice is done. Right, so there's no miscarriage of justice with God. As we move to verses uh, 11 to 17, what's well, part of this kind of big prayer song at the end of uh, Micah, um, it, it's a little bit more descriptive of saying, this is, okay, this is what's going to happen uh, in, in the future. Bounces back and forth between first person, second person, third person. Uh, and, and it's really picking up a lot of the stuff that we saw in chapter 2, 12 and 13, and, and chapters uh, 4 and 5, in terms of the promises of what is going to happen uh, in, in the future. Um, again, one of the challenges of reading this is Micah doesn't give us time stamps for when all of these things happen. Right? And so we may, uh, we may be able to see uh, some of it happening in, in some form now, right, between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus. I think a lot of it probably reaches its, its total fulfillment at the second coming of Jesus. So first, verses 11 to 13, God's going to restore the place of his dwelling, Jerusalem, and the nations are going to flock to it to worship God. will be a day for building your walls. Um, so, who's being addressed here? Either Jerusalem or just kind of the, the, the remnant of God's people in general. It will be a day for building your walls. On that day, your boundary will be extended. If you remember uh, the, this kind of terminology, on that day or in that day, uh, we saw that uh, earlier in the book usually references this, this sometimes it can just mean some point in the future but particularly in the sections where it's talked about this deliverance coming in the future it's looking forward to this, this specific day uh, when God is going to accomplish this think that's probably the day of the return of Christ and so on that day your boundary will be extended um, building walls extending boundaries these are uh, recall Israel at the height of its power when it was uh, under Solomon and, and everybody was, there was security, there was peace. Uh, the, the nation was at its largest, right? Solomon had extended the borders of the nations and, and, uh, and the riches of the world were, were flowing into Jerusalem. And it's like God's saying, that, that is going to happen again. Uh, it talks about this in, in verse 11 is pointing forward to a time when when God is going to reestablish this place of his dwelling, right at the center of Israel at the time of Solomon, it's the temple. And at the center of the temple is the Holy of Holies. And at the center of the Holy of Holies is the ark. And 
of the ark is the glory of God. And so God again is going to dwell in the midst of his people in his glory. And then verse 12, it, it will be a day when they will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt, from Egypt even to the Euphrates, from sea to sea to mountain to mountain. So these, uh, they, they will come to you. That is Syria, the cities of Egypt, Egypt, the Euphrates. All of these people are going to come. And so this verse 12 is sort of like a compass. Right? They're going to come from Assyria in the north, and they're going to come from uh, Egypt in uh, the south. And they're going to come from uh, the Euphrates in the east, from sea to sea, so the, the great sea in the Mediterranean in the west, mountain to mountain. This is like saying from, from everywhere on the compass, everywhere in the world, people are going to come to worship God in the place of his dwelling. And the earth will become desolate because of her inhabitants. So the land uh, will become desolate. Uh, desolate has a, has a real negative connotation, at least in English. Desolate sounds really bad. It doesn't necessarily need to be bad in Hebrew. It can just mean deserted or empty. So it's as if he's saying the, the, the earth is going to be emptied because of all of the people coming to Jerusalem. A little bit harder is this phrase, on account of the fruit of their deeds. So the earth is going to be deserted uh, because of the fruit of the deeds of her inhabitants. So that makes it sound a little bit more negative. Uh, the exact relationship is, is hard. Is it that the people are coming because the fruit of their deeds uh, has been wicked and so they've destroyed the land that they've lived on and they need to come to Israel? Uh, that might be a little bit more speculative, so sort of unclear exactly what the relationship is there. But the big point is that the people are going to be coming to Jerusalem, and this really recalls uh, the beginning of chapter 4, uh, verses 1 to Three, where it talks about the mountain of the Lord again being established, right, raised above all the mountains, and the nations are going to stream to it. See that happening. That day, um, God again will dwell in his people. The boundaries of, of the, the place of God's reign and rule will be expanded. It's going to be expanded to cover the whole earth. So God's going to restore his dwelling. He's going to bring the nations to worship him. Verses uh, 14 to 15, God is going to rescue and restore his people through this coming king, this coming shepherd king. He says, uh, and that verse 14 then is, is more directly uh, a prayer because it's addressing God. It's like the people saying, God, shepherd your people with your scepter. The flock of your possession, which dwells by itself in the woodland, in the midst of a fruitful field, let them feed in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. Um, this recalls, verse 14 really recalls chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, where, where God's uh, people are presented as a flock that God is going to shepherd and he's going to 
uh, bring them out of captivity through this, this, uh, this shepherd king, this king who's going to lead them out, who is the Lord himself, right? the breaker. The breaker will go before them. Their king will go at their head. It's interesting that, that uh, shepherd and scepter are, are put together here. You, know, you, sh- you shepherd with a, with a staff or a crook. Um, here you're shepherding with a scepter. So it's, he's going to shepherd, uh, God, God is going to shepherd his people. He's going to do it uh, in a kingly way. He's going to do it by a king. That's right. The, the scepter is symbolic of, of kingship. So the one who's going to shepherd God's people is the one who's also going to rule over God's people as king. Uh, the word scepter may also recall in Genesis 49, I think 49.10, where uh, Jacob, as he's dying, right, he's, and he's speaking these words of, of prophecy over his, his kids, says that the, the, the scepter will never depart from Judah, right? That, that it is Judah through whom God's royal reign is going to be a I need to replace my batteries. about that. All right. Oh, you couldn't read my handwriting? You're not the only one. All right. So again, this section recalls that God, God's gonna, God is going to restore his people. He's going to shepherd his people. Um, he's going to care for them. He's going to provide for them. He's going to do it through this shepherd king. Talks about them Dwelling uh, no longer dwelling uh, by by the flock dwelling by itself in the woodland. If you remember woodland, uh, this kind of idea shows up in uh, I think three twelve, where um, talks about the the mountain where the the temple is is just raised. The temple's destroyed, and it just is a place for for just trees, just woodland. It's it's no longer. Uh, inhabitable. Uh, so he's saying th- this: y- your people who dwell in this wilderness, bring them out into the midst of a fruitful field. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead, which uh, Bashan and Gilead are two places in in the land with especially fertile soil. And to to uh, shepherd a flock there is is representative of of God, please shepherd us in a place uh, where we're going to have plenty and provision and blessing like you promised. There's not going to be a lack as in the days of old. They're saying, like it was when, when things were going well. Shepherd us like that again. And then God 
it seems, responds in verse 15. He says, as in the days when you came out from the land of Egypt, I will show you miracles. So God says, just like I rescued you in the Exodus, I brought you out, I made you mine, I brought you into this place of blessing, just like that, it's going to happen, it's going to happen again. And I'm going to do it through my wonders. Right? This is in, uh, in Exodus, you see over and over again, God saying, I am going, I am going to show you my wonders, my mighty hand, my outstretched arm, and I will rescue you. God says, I'm going to do that again. Now, interestingly, this, uh, this idea that, that the coming salvation is going to be like the Exodus is something that gets picked up again and again in the prophets. Whenever they're talking about this future salvation, they talk about it in terms of a new Exodus. There's going to be something like the Exodus in the past. They always uh, present it, they frame it in that kind of language, in those concepts. So you see this in, in especially in Isaiah uh, 40 to 55, where it talks about this new, this new Exodus, that it's the, the uh, in, in the Exodus, the, the, it's the, the arm of the Lord is, the, is what's doing all of these things. You see that again in Isaiah 40 to 55. It's the arm of the Lord showing up again to lead the people out of, uh, out of slavery. And just like there was uh, a sacrifice uh, that averted God's uh, wrath against his people, so there will be a sacrifice that will avert the wrath of God, uh, and uh, it will be a spotless lamb who dies in the future, right? So there's lots of connections between uh, the, the salvation that came through the Exodus and what ends up happening in the gospel. And the prophets are always looking forward to this. They're looking at, at what's happening. They're, they're telling it to the people of Israel in Exodus language because that's what the, the people can grasp. That's what, oh, that's what it's going to be like. verses 16 and 17 then God is also going to bring judgment on the enemies of his people who will finally be punished for their wickedness nations will see and be ashamed of all their might they will put their hand on their mouth their ears will be deaf putting your hand on your mouth is a sign of shame um, you see that in uh, Micah 3, 7, where these false prophets uh, are, are claiming to get words from the Lord, and when God doesn't actually answer them, they put their hand over their mouth because they realize that, that they're being shown to be frauds. They will lick the dust like a serpent, like reptiles of the earth. They will come trembling out of their fortresses to the Lord our God. They will come in dread, and they will be afraid before you. And so you have two different kind of visions of what's going to happen with the nations. In verses 11 to 13, you have nations who are coming to God, it looks like, to worship. And you see that in the beginning of chapter 4, that the nations are saying, let us go up to the house of the Lord, that we may learn from him, that we may worship him. And then here, it says, these nations 
these peoples are going to be ashamed. They will come not willingly up to the house of the Lord to worship. They will come trembling out of their fortresses to the Lord our God. They will come in dread. They will be afraid before you. We see this at the end of uh, of verse or of uh, chapter four. Right, that these nations who don't know the Lord are going to be going to be punished. At the end of chapter five as well. I will execute vengeance and anger and wrath on the nations which have not obeyed. So some come to worship God, some continue to oppose him. But in the end, everybody comes. Some come willingly to worship, some come trembling to face judgment. But everybody comes, right? Philippians 2, right? Every knee bows, everybody bows. Everybody bows. They do it willingly in worship, or they do it forcibly in submission as they face judgment. This is justice. Right? It's God's people have been, have been attacked and abused by these nations who have hated God and disobeyed him and, and, and done all these wicked things. Now they're, they're getting what they deserve. This is the favorite part of, of movies, right? At the end where the bad guy finally gets what he deserves. That's what's going on here. It's justice. And then verses 18 to 20 finish up the book, and this is a, a uh, transitions into a, a prayer of praise for this God who saves. Draws everything together. And in this prayer, there's seven attributes of God that are highlighted. Uh, and I think one of the reasons for that, and then verse 20 talks about the promise of God, and the, the fa- God's faithfulness to his promise. I think one of the reasons why this this is the case is because um, the the promises of God and the reliability of the promises of God are based on the character and nature of God. Right? Somebody's promises are only as good as their character. So if I make you a promise and you think I'm trustworthy, then you will be uh, more likely to trust me and to trust that I'm telling you the truth and that I'll actually do what I promise. If you don't think I'm very trustworthy, then you're not going to spend a lot of time thinking about um, relying on me for, for what I promise. And so the reason that we trust God is because he is, he is true, constant, faithful. His nature, his attributes tell us that he's entirely trustworthy and that we can rely on him to do what he promises. That's why it's important that we not only know the things that God has promised us, but we actually know things that are true about God. that we, we can rely on him. Particularly when we don't know specific things that God has promised to do for us. There's lots of situations in our lives where we don't have a chapter and verse saying this is what's going to happen. I guess the vast majority of the time in terms of the specific situations of our lives. We don't have a chapter and verse telling us this is what's going to happen. 
And so the only way that we can survive in those times is if we have a, a good working, understanding, relationship, knowledge of who God is. Right? We, we don't know exactly what is going to happen, but we know Him. There's an, an old hymn. I can see if I can remember the, the lines. I, uh, I do not know the, uh, the way my feet will have to tread, uh, but only that my soul may feed upon the living bread. Tis better far that I should walk by faith close to his side. I do not know the way I go, but oh, I know my guide. So we know these things that are true about God, we'll not only be able to trust what He promises, believe that He's going to do it, we'll be able to trust Him even if we don't know what's going to happen. So verse 18 begins, Who is a God like you? If you remember, we talked about this the, the first week. Uh, this is Micah. Right? The, word, the name Micah means who is like the Lord. So the book begins with Micah, the book ends with Micah. Who is a God like you? Which, of course, is a rhetorical question because the answer is no one. You're the only one. With this expression of praise, who is a God like you? And then these, these attributes. So, number one, who pardons iniquity. Number two, passes over rebellious acts with a remnant of his possession. Number three, who does not retain his anger forever. Number four, because he delights in unchanging love. Five, will again have compassion on us. Six, he will tread our iniquities underfoot. And seven, will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Um, if you were to kind of line all of these up, it forms what's called a, a chiasm or chiastic structure. You guys heard that before? It's a, it's a literary structure where um, the, the uh, different, there's a, there's a center, there's a focus in the center and then it kind of fans out and the, and the elements on either side parallel each other. So attribute 5 and attribute 3 are related, 2 and 6 are related, 1 and 7 are related, and it's all meant to kind of focus your attention in on the on this center point. So this is very common in Hebrew, especially Hebrew poetry. So we're meant to be focused in on this fourth attribute. So we're going to we're going to get there in a sec. <coughs> uh, one to three uh, really address um, kind of basics of who God is. Uh, five to seven then uh, talk about in light of who God is, this is what we can rely on him to do in the future. And then four is sort of the, the hinge point of it all, the focus of it all that summarizes uh, in its most basic way, who God is and what he does. So, the first one, who pardons iniquity. A lot of these are, are actually, if you were to read Exodus 
34, 6 and 7, which is this statement of God's name and nature, right? The Lord, the Lord, a God, uh, oh gosh, now I'm going to forget it. Uh, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, pardoning iniquity. Um, a lot of these things are going to show up again. They, they show up over and over and over again in the Old Testament. Like this, is, this is the language that you use to talk about this God who is faithful. That's uh, the way that God himself described himself, revealed himself to Moses. So he pardons iniquity. Uh, pardon doesn't necessarily only mean um, forgive. Uh, it also can be translated uh, bore or carried. Um, so he carried our iniquity. Um, this uh, may not only be uh, a reference to the fact that, that he takes it away, but he takes it away because it's borne by another or carried away by another. You see this happen in, uh, in Leviticus 16 in the Day of Atonement, right, where the high priest lays his hands on the scapegoat, confesses the sins of the people over this goat, and symbolically transfers the sins of the nation to the goat. And then they chase this goat off into the wilderness. It says that the sins, uh, the people are carried off into the wilderness, born into the wilderness. Uh, it's also used, this word is also used in Isaiah 53, four, uh, verses 4 and 12, uh, to talk about the one who, who carried or bore our iniquities, our sins, our transgressions. So it's not pardon without justice as if God was just going to say, oh, I'm just going to forget about those iniquities. That's not really a big deal. It's pardon with justice because the justice is, is borne by, by a substitute. God pardons iniquity. He passes over the rebellious acts of the remnant of his possessions. May it speak to God's patience uh, to some extent, because in, in Proverbs 19.11, you have the same idea of, of passing over the rebellious acts of the remnant, uh, or pa passing over offenses. Um, I said this last night, I would really love if this word uh, passes over was the same word as that which was used in Exodus to talk about God passing over the houses. It would, be, it would preach really well. Unfortunately, it's not true. <laughs> it's not the same word. It would be lots of fun, but it's not. So, um, it's, uh, but it is used in Proverbs 19.11 uh, where it says, A man's wisdom gives him patience, and it's to his glory to overlook or to pass over an offense. Uh, and so there, there may be some relationship to the patience of God, um, that he is willing to, uh, to bear with the rebellious acts of his people, um, not because they're not going to be punished, uh, but in fact, this, this idea may actually show up in, in uh, Rome. You should really just read Romans, uh, like I already said. But in Romans 3, uh, 25, 26, it talks about how in former times, God, God in his forbearance passed over the sins of his people, knowing that he was going to punish them in the future in Christ. So that those who are forgiven before the coming of Christ are forgiven not because their sins aren't going to be punished, but because God was looking forward to what he was going to do in Christ and saying, on the basis of that work, which I know infallibly is going to happen, I will forgive you. He does not retain his anger forever, right? His anger is not 
his anger with his people is disciplinary, but it's not punitive. Uh, it's not punishment. It's not, uh, he, he's not intending to destroy these people. He doesn't retain his anger forever. You can see a lot of similarities between this section, actually, and, and Psalm 103. He does not retain his anger forever. Because he delights in unchanging love. And here's the center. This word unchanging love, this is the word hesed. Very difficult to translate in English. Unchanging love, steadfast love, loyal love, kindness, mercy, loving kindness, uh, uh, compassion. Um, there's, there's all sorts of uh, nuances to it. Really, it just speaks to this, uh, this uh, unchanging, faithful, uh, covenant love and mercy that God has. It's this, this fundamental attribute of God's nature that he is full of hesed. He is full of this unchanging love. It's the same word as what gets used in, in, uh, in Micah 6, 8. It talks about the people uh, being called to love kindness. Same word, kindness, same word. And this shows you kind of the range of translation and how it's difficult to understand. So it's, uh, God wants his people to love kindness. He wants them to love unchanging love like he does. He delights in it. It's who he is. So that's what he wants his people to be. Because of these things, then in verse 19, it's an announcement of because of these things, this is what's going to happen. Uh, he will... Uh, and so in verse 19, everything is he will, he will, he will. So it's talking about the future. He will do this. You will again have compassion on us. Instead of retaining your anger forever, you're going to have compassion on us. You will tread our iniquities underfoot. You're going to have victory uh, over the sins of your people. You are uh, going to pass over uh, them and, and you are going to deal with them. You will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Uh, you will pardon the iniquity of your people. So these connections between these. It's interesting that throughout the book, uh, certainly if you, if you were living at the time, in, in, I think in the people's minds, they would be thinking, um, our, our biggest problem right now is the fact that the Assyrians are right at the gate or the Babylonians are coming. Um, that's the biggest problem. And yet here at the end, really brings out that in God's mind, the biggest issue that the people face is not these enemy armies. They're just tools in the hands of God. The biggest problem is the people's sin. And so when, when Micah is, is giving these people this, this prayer of praise, he's saying, God's going to take care of your biggest enemy. Your biggest enemy is your sin. That's the one that needs to be dealt with. And ultimately, your sins will be cast into the depths of the sea, very similar to Psalm 103, 12, right? As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our sins from us, right? How far is east from west? It's impossible to measure, right? How far are the depths of the sea? Well, they don't have submarines. So the depths of the sea are somewhere you can't go, right? He's, I'm going I'm to totally take them away. And then verse 20 talks about this, this promise again. 
because of who God is, he'll be faithful to his promises. You will give truth to Jacob and unchanging love to Abraham, which you swore to our forefathers from days of old. So the book ends with a reference to Abraham, which is kind of interesting because Abraham really hasn't featured in the book at all, right? He just kind of shows up here at the end. You're going to be you're going to show this un- unchanging love to Abraham. And this has been hinted at throughout the book, but the reason that God is going to be faithful is not because the people have been faithful and have earned it, but because God is going to be faithful to his own covenant that he made with his people. This is this, the unchanging love to Abraham. Right? The people constantly screw up, and God keeps saying, but I'm going to be faithful to you because of the promises that I made to my people. You give unchanging love. Again, same word has said, unchanging love to Abraham. We've seen that throughout the book. God's going to rescue and restore his people. He's going to bring the nations to worship him, and he's going to do it for the sake of his own faithfulness, not because the people have done anything to deserve it. He's going to do it through this shepherd king that he's promised to bring, who will then bless the nations, which is what the covenant with Abraham was all about to begin with, to make him a blessing to the earth. So we obviously see that ultimately accomplished in Christ. As Christ, as Paul says in Romans 15, uh, Christ became a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth so that the promises made to the patriarchs, Abraham, Jacob, uh, would be confirmed And moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. It's God's plan all along, right, to to bring all peoples to to worship him through the Messiah. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1 that all of the promises of God are yes in Christ. Christ is the center point of, of all of the fulfillment of God's promises for his people. I think it is interesting just as we as we draw to a close this phrase here uh, you will give truth to Jacob uh, the word truth can also uh, be translated as faithfulness which is interesting because it's it's the uh, it's a quality that has been completely lacking from the people in the book right so the whole point is that the people are not faithful. And that's why this judgment is coming on them. And yet here, at the very end, God in promising what's, what's going to happen, he says, I'm going I'm to take your sins away, and I'm going to give you faithfulness. Right? Even in Deuteronomy, the people knew that they couldn't, they couldn't fully obey God's law because it needed to include a heart change, something from the inside out. The people were, were not faithful, and even when they tried to be faithful, they couldn't be faithful. And this, this is what the, the law was intended to lead us to Christ, right? The law was intended to show us that we couldn't do it and that we needed God to change us. In the words of the Old Testament, God needed to circumcise our hearts. In the New Testament, the metaphor has changed. You need to be born again. Right? You need a new, a new heart. So the future deliverance for God's people is more than physical. It's not just coming out of exile and getting the land. That stuff is all 
that's tangential. What's really important is that their, their sins are going to be forgiven, and they're going to be given new hearts. God's going to put faithfulness into them. Very similar to uh, Jeremiah 31, uh, 34, and in Ezekiel um, 36, 25 to 28, you see these promises of the new covenant and two of the blessings of the new covenant are the forgiveness of sins. I will remember their sins no more. And I will put my law within them. I will write my law on their hearts. That is God putting faithfulness to him into the hearts of his people. Not just requiring it of them, but actually making it happen in them. God's going to be faithful to his covenant. He swore it in the day, to the forefathers from the days of old. He's going to be faithful, and this is ultimately, we see this fulfilled in Jesus, right? As he, as he comes and as he uh, is uh, the, the means by which both uh, the Jews and the Gentiles come to worship God, all descendants of Abraham by faith. So the book ends on this joyful note of expectant hope that God's going to be faithful to his people, but he's going to be faithful to his people for his own sake, because of his promises, because he's faithful, despite the people's unfaithfulness, and therefore he can be trusted. That's the end of the book of Micah. So... I uh, made everybody last night wait in suspense. I forgot to take the, the sheets off today. So if you've already been over to the table, you see that in the fall we're going to do Colossians. I made everybody wait till the very end before they could see that uh, last night. So you guys are lucky. Or I'm just lazy. One of the two. So the questions are there. I hope you guys have a great uh, discussion. This has been fun. I hope it's been helpful. I'm not fishing for compliments. I really do hope it's been, it's been helpful and, uh, and that you've learned. Uh, I hope that... Uh, if there's anything I've said that is not true to God's word, that you forget it uh, and that it, it uh, uh, does not stick in your mind. And uh, so I'm looking forward to, to studying again in the fall, do Colossians, tentative schedule there and some resources if you're looking for that. So I hope you come back and uh, yeah, enjoy your discussion. You're welcome. <laughs>